I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. We're in the final stretch to the midterms, and the African American Policy Forum has just wrapped up our Get Out the Vote tour. We went through 24 cities along with the Transformative Justice Coalition and Black Voters Matter. We called our campaign From Freedom Riders to Freedom Readers, the Books Unbanned Tour. We hit the road to draw out the connections between the onslaught of book bans that seek to silence our understanding of our fractured past and the contemporary effort to suppress our votes. In the face of this two-fisted attack on democracy, we mobilized to make good trouble, like the Freedom Riders before us. We wanted to make it concrete. We wanted to show our community exactly what forbidden knowledge is being gerrymandered out of history, especially in those regions where the Black vote is being blatantly suppressed by restrictive laws and also the threat of violence. In the face of this, Black voters once again are being called upon as the last line of defense against the national slide away from our multiracial democracy, something that some of the fearless companions on our tour, the good folks at Black Voters Matter, made plain at every stop with their unforgettable energy. Cliff Albright, who co-founded the organization with Latasha Brown, rendezvoused with AAPF and TJC at several stops on the 14-state tour, including our last stop in Florida. Here he is talking about what folks in Georgia know about the kinds of things that are happening in Florida. Vote suppression, gerrymandering, and straight-out intimidation. We know a little bit of something about how this governor decided to dismantle districts that had been black opportunity districts and to cut them up to eliminate that chance, to dilute the black voting power. So we know a little something about voter suppression right here in the state of Florida. But we got a message for DeSantis and all those that were standing away. And that's why we got the words on that big old black bus. What y'all think about that bus out there? We call it the blackest bus in America. But it's got a message on it that's serious. And that message is, we won't black down. Somebody say, we won't black down. Say, we won't black down. Now, we do work in 25 states and and, and none that we're more proud and happy to be in than the great state of Florida, but we're based in Georgia. A couple of years ago, we had a little election that you may have heard something about. We had an election for president and black folks came out in historic numbers and shocked the country. And a lot of folks looked at us and they said, "Well, well, that's a fluke. And so we messed around two months later and had the audacity to do it again had the audacity to come back and had turnout in a runoff election in the middle of winter, in the middle of COVID, and come out in record numbers. That's what black folks did in Georgia. But we did it so bad in Georgia that that the guy that used to be in the White House, he got all nervous and lost his mind, right? Whatever mind was left, he lost it. He got on the phone and said, I need you to find me 11,700 votes. The incredible turnout of black voters in 2020, along with the national protest against the murder of George Floyd, sparked a backlash that we're living through right now. 
That's why this need to transform our action and energy into political power has never been more urgent. It's also the reason we're seeing moves to block the tide of Black civic participation. Take Georgia, for example, where SB 202, a bill passed under the guise of decreasing voter fraud, takes effect for the first time this election cycle. Among the many draconian restrictions it contains, the bill blocks people from bringing food and water to people waiting in line to vote. Now, long lines, we know, are a hurdle to casting the ballot, a hurdle that disproportionately is faced by Black communities. That's vote suppression. More fallout this morning from Georgia's passage of new voting laws. Taking part in a silent protest at the state capitol Monday, Martin Luther King III. He believes Georgia's new voting law signals an attempt to suppress the votes of people of color. We saw some form of suppression happening at nearly every stop we made. Before Georgia, we were in North Carolina, where a voter ID law proposed by the GOP was so egregiously aimed at Black voters that the court striking it down observed that the legislature had used, quote, surgical precision, unquote, to suppress the potential power of Black North Carolinians. The judges point out that race and politics are deeply intertwined in North Carolina, quote, in close elections and in an era of divided state government, Polarization along racial lines has made access to the ballot box a critical issue. This most recent expansion of African-American political participation has been met with facially neutral laws enacted by Republican majorities and designed to constrain African-American political power. Then, of course, there's Florida. Last Friday, a Miami man arrested under DeSantis's newly formed Florida Office of Election Crimes and Security had its charges dismissed. Floridians voted in 2018 to allow formerly incarcerated people with past felony convictions to cast ballots, excluding those convicted of murder or felony sex offenses. Robert Lee Wood was among 20 mostly black voters arrested in August who said they were encouraged to vote by Florida officials and were not made aware of this exclusion, which is not stated on voter registration forms. Police body cam footage shows how people seem puzzled by their arrests and didn't intend to run afoul of the law. Elsewhere throughout the country, voters are risking physical violence just by going to the polls. Armed vigilantes in Arizona, for example, have taken it upon themselves to stand outside voting stations, filming people, taking down license plate numbers of black and brown folks who are simply exercising their right to vote. This is nothing but intimidation. And it looks familiar, just like in 1876, for example, in a period that is now called redemption. As implicated by that title, what they were trying to redeem was white supremacy, overthrowing biracial governments in order to return black communities to their voteless and voiceless status. Consider redemption to be the 19th century version of Make America Great Again, the belief that America was better off back in the day when black folks, brown folks, women, and queer folks exercised little political power. In terms of political and narrative power, we were collectively better seen and not heard. Redeemers got what they wanted by unmitigated violence, organized intimidation, 
formally neutral obstacles like poll taxes, literacy tests, and grandfather clauses. In the end, multiracial democracy collapsed, though, when Northern opinions supported Southern claims that Blacks were criminal and unfit to exercise democratic power. In the greatest betrayal of the nation's commitment to equality, Northerners eventually embraced the domination of Black people as a path to white reconciliation. With Northern abandonment, a state of tyranny emerged that suffocated Black life economically, socially, and politically. So when folks say the current descent into far-right tyranny is simply not who we are, when they are made uncomfortable by the fact that we have been here before, And when they'd rather paint an exclusively rosy picture of our democratic aspirations rather than face our history and current circumstance squarely and directly, well, they're separating Black history from American history and extending the consequences of this erasure into the tragedies of today. This is not just a Black or Brown folks problem, though. It's everyone's problem. We simply cannot rise to save democracy without saving anti-racism. When racism is made unspeakable, a true multiracial democracy is unachievable. Cliff, along with his co-founder Latasha Brown and TJC's Barbara Arnwine, are what I call evangelical revivalists of democracy, preaching a message for black voters and other unwanted voters that this democracy is ours and it needs us. They say things that are so rarely spelled out, like linking Trump's frantic effort to fraudulently declare victory in Georgia to the desire to suppress the black vote in many battleground states. Here's one of the calls to action that I witnessed at every stop of our tour with the powerhouse that is Cliff Albright. So he lost his mind, but he didn't just lose his mind about black folks in Georgia. He lost his mind about black folks where else? In, in Philly, in Pennsylvania, right? They lost their minds about Michigan. They was upset about the votes in Michigan, but they weren't just upset about all of Michigan. What was they upset about? Detroit. Detroit, right? They was upset. And who in Detroit were they upset about? Right? And so, but they weren't just, they didn't stop there. They was upset about Wisconsin, too. But not everywhere in Wisconsin. Where are they upset about? Milwaukee. In Milwaukee. And who in Milwaukee? Black folks. Black folks made these folks done lose their minds, y'all. Black folks sold out so much that these folks ran up to D.C. and stormed the Capitol. That's how much they lost their mind. Right? And so when we say we won't black down, that's what we're talking about. And so here in Florida, I am believing that just like the state of Georgia shocked the country two, two years ago, I believe the state of Florida is about to shock the country. Now, I can't tell you who it is that will win and needs to win in order for that to happen. But what I can tell you is that whatever happens in this state, it's going to happen because of black folks. And whatever happens in this state is going to shock the country. Now, y'all know where y'all are at. Duval is going to shape the way that this entire state goes. Y'all got the power to make that happen. But you got to believe that you got that power. See, I believe you got that power. See, those folks over there that travel with us in that big old black bus, see, y'all think that bus is pretty, but we go through a lot of communities and a lot of sundown towns where that bus ain't pretty, right? We go through a lot of stuff, but we do it because we believe. 
and our people. And so when we say we won't black down, that's what we're talking about. We're not going to lay down. We're not going to settle down. We ain't going to quiet down. We won't black down. See what I mean? Cliff had me shouting every time. I told you he took us to church in that old tradition that saw us through the civil rights movement. Now, just before Black Voters Matter's final push to November 8th, I managed to catch up with Cliff to reflect on the democratic crises we're facing and on the starring role that Black voting plays in this struggle to secure our democracy, to secure it against those who would rather break this nation than to share it with us. Thank you so much for joining Intersectionality Matters. No, thank you for having me. I've been trying to make it here. I've been trying to make it. I finally made it to the big stage. Oh, my goodness. People, let me tell you, Cliff took us to church at every stop. The gift that he has to make clear why our voting matters, why the people who want to take it away from us realize that we have the capacity to save this democracy, why we need to care, why voting is the first but not the last thing that we need to do in order to fully participate in this democracy. So I can't tell you what an honor, what a thrill it was to to be on the road with Black Voters Matter. I just, I have to paint a picture for y'all. So we're in this caravan. There's two buses that the Transformative Justice Coalition wrapped with a big uh, image of John Lewis and all of the organization's names are on it. So so that's that's rolling down the street. Then the black bus that some of us are using as the office is rolling down the street. And then comes the blackest bus in America, <laughs> as Black <laughs> Voters Matters calls it. And, you know, it's a sight to behold. It's Fannie Lou Hamer. It is uh, the marchers. It's just thick of imagery that is recognized by any black person when it rolls through. And when, when it rolled up, I had a lot of my people in East Cleveland, Ohio. I said, y'all gotta come up and, and see us. And so we were all there on the sidewalk and we hear the bus before we see it. We hear the music pumping, we hear the voices, like get out and vote, everything stops. And it's just, you know, mouths agape and people are like in wonder as the bus rolls up and Cliff, you and your team get off. But I'm excited here to talk to you about that work, about Black Voters Matter, and in particular, why this election is one of the most important elections in our lifetime. Cliff, tell us, just to get started, tell us just a little bit about the mission and how you are achieving this mission with the blackest bus in America. Yeah, well, I'm so glad to be here speaking with you. So yeah, Black Voters Matter, our mission is to build power in black communities, right? And we know that there's a lot of ways to build power in our communities. There's, there's political power, there's economic power, there's cultural power, there's educational power, right? They're like the, the power of being able to, to tell our own story. But we know that a critical way of building power is through the vote and through electoral organizing. And so what we do is that we partner with groups throughout right now 25 states where we have some type of partnerships and relationships with community-based groups. Because at the end of the day, what we know is that in order for Black voters to matter, we have got to support and invest in the local infrastructure, the local groups, the community-based groups, the, the the churches, the NAACP chapters, the the neighborhood associations, right? We got to invest in those groups 
that do this work all throughout the year, right? 300, we call it the 365 work. The groups that are organizing for racial justice and, you know, fighting gentrification and, and economic issues and all of that. That's the 365 work. Because at the end of the day, we can't show up in late October telling folk, we want your vote. And you ain't been around for the whole rest of the year. Yes. <laughs> right? Like, yes. where where were you in January when our power grid was out, right? And we didn't have power. Where were you back in the summer when our water was dirty, right? Where were you when they were, you know, attacking our kids and, and trying to kick them out because they wore their hair a certain way? Like, where were you when the rest of this was going on? Or even just from the narrow electoral perspective, where were you in the spring when there was a primary that was important to us. And we needed you out because we were trying to get rid of this sheriff or this DA. And that in our county, the November election isn't the big thing. The big thing is that primary that takes place early in the year, but you didn't show up then. But then you want to come back and show up in November, talk about we need you to save the country and save democracy. And so, so a key part of our approach is supporting, working with, partnering with those community-based groups that do this work all throughout the year. And we believe that when we do that and when we have the right messaging, you know, messaging that inspires our folks, um, messaging that, that informs our communities, right? And when we provide the right tools, that's how you really demonstrate that Black voters matter. You know, that's how we get massive turnout that the rest of the country doesn't expect. That's how we have something like what happened in Georgia happen two years ago. And that's how we create create a situation where we can actually control our destinies in our communities all across this country. And and frankly, when it comes to the challenge of midterms, in terms of some of the national parties, we don't see them except presidential years, right? That's we right. don't see them um, in all the elections, as you're pointing out, that make a difference in our day-to-day -day life. So tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about how the bus, the idea of the traveling <laughs> and the idea grew to the bus. Just give us a, a sense of how this as a, as a tactic developed as a key part of some of the work that you do. Yeah, it really came about. So after the, the Alabama election of 2017, when, again, black folks came out and we were one of the organizations that helped mobilize black voters and came out and shocked the country in Alabama in 2017 with that Senate race between Doug Jones and, and the pedophile Roy Moore, um, the racist pedophile Roy Moore. But after that election, when we started to expand, that was, and that was really that was really kind of the birth of Black Voters Matter. You know, the approach we've been doing, we've been doing this work for 20 something years. But as an organization, we're really only about five years old. So after that election, we said, OK, we want to expand. We want to go to like seven states. And Latasha and I, you know, we, we hopped in a rental car. She always teases me. She says, I, you know, I would always rent like the economy, the cheapest economy car you could find. <laughs> and we'd be driving around. She Stretch says, we'd be driving dollars. around. That's right. That's right. You know, so, but it was just the two of us. And we would drive around and we would go through these states where a lot of people look at as, as red states. And not just in red states, but in counties that are like these rural counties that nobody's you know, nobody knows, nobody can find on a map. In reality, many of them include sundown towns that we were driving through. And and just given give the give the listeners a sense of what a sundown town is, because yeah. surprisingly, some of my students, I say this and, and they don't yeah. they don't know along with who who's this Jim Crow guy. So. Right, right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so driving to sundown towns are those towns where it was known and sometimes it would even be posted that if you were black, you need to be out of that town by the time the sun sets, by, by sundown, because if you were found in that town after the sun went down, you know, you could lose your life. And that, and that was real talk. 
And there, there's still places like that. And there's still places like that. We, we, we've had in situations. We were in Texas uh, last year, and we were planning a caravan. And the route that we had to take to do the caravan went through a town. And literally, the folks we were working with was like, "We, we can't do that route." We, you know, we got to go a different way or we have to do we have to have a different endpoint because to do that route, we have to go through. I can't remember the name of the town, but they were like, and that's still a sundown town. And this was bad because we were we weren't even like going through the town on like the local roads. We were going to literally be on the interstate. So we were really, really just passing by the town more so than through the town. They didn't even want to mess with that. You know, and so that's a that's a reality. And, and a lot of times when we drive around that blackest bus in America, that's the hostile territory that we're going through. So imagine doing that before the bus when it was just me and Latasha in the rental car <laughs> going to meet with all these communities. So long story short, we spent months doing that and connecting with people and building relationships. And then as we got later on in the year in 2018, we said, you know what, we want to go back. But this time, we don't want to just go back with the two of us. We want to go back with more staff. We want to go back with more statewide partners and national partners. We want to go back with more media because we want to help shed a light on this incredible work that's going on that nobody knows about, right? And so we said, well, if we do that, we can't be in a little compact car. We need a bigger vehicle. In fact, we, we might actually need a bus. And then once we said we needed a bus, we said, well, it can't just be any old bus. It's got to be like... <laughs> Uh, like the blackest bus, right? It's got to be like a special bus so that when we roll through, people feel a certain type of way, like like mm. something special, something magical is about to happen. And it's, and it's okay to be unapologetically black. And so that's where the idea came from. We say if we don't do anything else, if we don't win an election, if we don't, you know, if we don't get like huge turnout at an event, you know, if all we do is that we have left the place with people feeling like uh, that they are loved and they matter and like that it's okay to be unapologetically black and that they are not alone, right? That's critical, that they are not alone. If that's all we do and we leave that community with that feeling, then we've done our job because guess what? If we do that, all the rest of it, the electoral victories, the policy victories, all the rest of it will take care of itself if we can generate that feeling. Cliff's description of the sundown towns and the risk his team faces when they dare mobilize Black voters is no exaggeration. We're seeing an undeniable increase in violent threats by people emboldened by white supremacist rhetoric, brainwashed into thinking that dismantling our multiracial democracy is an effort to restore America to some mythic former greatness. We saw this in real time on January 6th, And we saw it again just days before I spoke with Cliff, when Paul Pelosi, the 82-year-old husband of Nancy Pelosi, was held hostage and beaten by an alt-right conspiracy theorist, someone who had the express intention of harming the Democratic Speaker of the House. He told police that one of the reasons he decided not to run away when he knew Paul Pelosi called 911 was because he saw himself fighting a righteous battle against tyranny just like the Founding Fathers during the Revolutionary War. And he said it was his patriotism that required him to stay at the House. The Department of Homeland Security has been warning local police departments across the country that there is an elevated risk of violence during the November 8th midterms. Tonight, from polling locations nationwide to the U.S. Capitol, the threat of political violence is becoming increasingly urgent. Concerns include the targeting of political rallies, voting sites, poll workers, and election officials. 
calling these threats political violence or using the sort of both sidesism to cover it actually obscures what kind of violence this really is. I mean, one could have said clan violence is political violence, but we all knew that clan violence, redemption violence, is racist violence. It's violence designed to uphold white supremacy. Perhaps the more appropriate way of framing it is it's domestic terrorism designed to skew elections by any means possible. And to top it off, when the topic does turn to race and violence, we're seeing an old page out of a familiar playbook. Cliff and I talked about the precedents for what we're seeing playing out in this election, the fear of the black criminal at our second to the last stop on the campus of Edward Waters University and HBCU in Florida. I asked Cliff what he made of this Trump era spirit that's still haunting the ballot box during this election cycle especially in states where the Black vote has the power to make or break a candidate's chances of taking off. Here's what he said. I was talking to a reporter yesterday, and he was asking me about this crime motif. Yeah. And how all these candidates, Dr. Oz, him, all of them are using the crime thing, right? He was like, you know, where does that come from? And, you know, and, and my first response was like to go back to like Nixon and Southern strategy and law and go order. But then I was like, but the truth is we, we, we can take that all the way back to Reconstruction. Reconstruction. Birth of a nation. It was a whole That's film with the, the, the notion that black crime is, is, is tearing down the country. And liberal that we come acquiescence to, take. to right. that argument. That's right. Right. It's That's not right. just that they say mm-hmm. it, but our folks, by our folks, I mean, mm-hmm. Supposed allies, right? Just go along with right. it. Like, you know, Re- Reconstruction was over not just because the Redeemers mm. used violence, but because mm. the North allowed Come them on. to. Come on. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. so it's like, the, it's the same thing. We look at the paper of record. Are they mm-hmm. actually calling out the lie about mm-hmm. the crime wave? Mm-hmm. Are they really connecting it mm-hmm. to all the disenfranchisement in the past, push right. black people out with, with this boogaboo of mm-hmm. crime? No, they're not really telling the truth about that's it. Right. And that's why it continues to be effective. That's right. You know? I, I was saying this the other day. We went to Wilmington, right? Mm. Oh, God, I wanted to go so bad. Well, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. You would think here's the place where a few historians who know about it say that is where a legit political coup happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You would think there'd be a placard, right. a monument, right. a museum, right. something about white supremacy, mm-hmm. how it undermines democracy. Right. Here is ground mm-hmm. zero. Ain't nothing. Nothing. Nope. I, 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 I don't have words to express right. what what it meant to just see a blank page, yeah. just un, unmarked. Right. It made sense mm. then why people could say this is not who we are. Right. You know, right. people say it cannot happen here. Mm. They don't know what it already has mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they just ripped those That's pages right. out. That's just right. it's that. just it's astonishing. It's, it's interesting how even in its absence, it's a reminder. Yes. You know of even, what we're fighting right, right now. That's Both right. The fact of the coercion mm-hmm. and the erasure mm-hmm. of our contemporary condition, mm-hmm. both of these things, yeah. hand in hand. I keep the Black Voters Matter chant in my mind as a constant reminder of our power and of the need for our continued refusal to let obscured history blur our vision of what's possible in our future. Cliff preached about it at every stop, and I heard other gifted activists from the Black Voters Matter crew, people like Wanda Mosley, get the folks fired up by this potent call to action. We won't black down, they called out, over and over again. 
I want you to understand that we were very intentional with this naming because this is a call to action for our people. We know all of our rights, so many of our rights are under attack right now, but we are a resilient people and we have to remember that we will not black down. We know that we are in this fight. It shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't have to vote for rights that are given to me by my birth. Freedom is my birthright. So is my voting right. But yet still, we see all of these attacks from so many different fronts. But we won't black down. Just imagine black folks across the nation facing voter suppression and intimidation, working up their determination to go to the polls, and then to be bolstered by the sweet surprise of the blackest bus in America rolling through their town. To know that they are not alone, they're fought for, they're seen, and they're cared for, it's just invaluable. Black voters are turning out in big numbers again for early voting, even in states where the race is tight, which means that the threat of suppression and intimidation is high. Does this mean that Black Voters Matter has accomplished their mission? Describe how you know when you have tapped into that inner sense of Black folks mattering. You roll, you roll in. What happens? What gives you, you know, the sense that, yes, we, we have done what we've come to do in this place? It's the way that people respond. We've, people have responded to the bus like they'll start crying. Like when it rolls into town, we rolled into one town in South Carolina where we pull up to a field that had like 200 people on it. And we were a little late and they were, you, you know how that goes, right? You, you, you've experienced that where we were a little late, probably because we were caught up someplace else, giving out some shirts or something. But we were a little late. And so when we got to the park, uh, all the 200 people turned and faced the bus and like simultaneously put their fist up in the air. Oh, my right? gosh. Yeah. You know, we've had so many experiences like that. We've had places where we pull up and like, you know, it's it's like a block party going on. People just so excited to see it. You know, it's things like that that let us know that it's having an impact. Oh, my God. We have so many partners that when the bus comes through, part of what we do is, you know, we try to get more media attention. Right. And what happens is a media team will come out and they'll do a story and they'll get video. And when our local partners see some of these stories in their local newspaper mm-hmm. or on their local station, they'll send us the link and be like, oh, my God, did you see this? Look, they covered they covered us. And because in many of these communities, they can't get that coverage on their own. That's right. right. In fact, in many of these communities, that local station or that local paper is actually a part of the, the, the mechanisms of white supremacy that are that are keeping their work from being covered. Exactly. And so when they see that they're getting this attention, it makes them feel good, right? It lets them be validated. And what else does it do? It gives their whole organization and their programs more credibility, even with black folks who might have been looking at them like, oh, that's, that's those troublemakers. Oh, we don't want to be down with them. And so it puts them at a different level. So it's when we see those reactions from individuals and from partner organizations, that's when we know that, you know, something is happening and that, that a, a flame has been lit. And no better example of that can be illustrated than, than what you all have been doing. So, you know, we know that we're, we're days out now from a midterm election. And just to put a point on how few people really know what that means, uh, I was reading an article the other day about how some influencers who'd been invited to 
DC were saying that when they were tweeting and posting about the midterms, some people didn't know what they were talking about, or they thought they were talking about some exams in school. I mean, number one, what are you seeing out there in terms of the level of awareness, but most particularly, why have people been saying that this is perhaps one of the most important elections in our lifetimes? Yeah, I get tired of saying it. I even get tired of hearing it because it's so often said, oh, it's the most important election of our, our lifetimes. But, you know, when you look at this year, I mean, there is something substantively different. It's a reality that this is the first midterm election after there was an attempted coup, <laughs> right? After there was an attack at the Capitol. Like, that's that's objectively something that we've never seen happen before. At least at the federal level, right? And we can get into that because we know as black Mm -hmm. folks, we've 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 had some coups, right? And so, but like at the federal level in terms of attacking the Capitol, that's that's not something that the country has seen before. And so whether it's that or or that you've got rights like abortion rights and reproductive justice, rights that have been taken away by a Supreme Court after 50 year precedent, like that's legitimately objectively something that We've not seen happen. We've seen rights taken away. Like, again, as black folks, we've seen we've seen voting rights being taken away. But we've never seen uh, rights like like this taken away after Supreme Court precedent for 50 years in terms of of abortion rights. So and we could go down the list around, you know, we've we've not seen the level of again, at the national level, the level of political violence and political threats, right? We just had the the husband of the Speaker of the House be attacked when what was, was essentially an attempted assassination. Uh, you know, we're looking at right now, as we speak, there are armed people in tactical gear sitting outside of election drop box in Arizona, intimidating uh, voters, right? Um, again, something we've seen as black folks, but on the scale that it's happening throughout this country, we really are at a at a very critical place, very critical juncture. And so when we say that this is the most important election, um, you know, there's there's some objective reality to that. And so for us as black folks, you know, our issues are, are on the ballot, right? Right now, as we speak, I know you know very well, they're debating affirmative action. Right. And so, you know, whether it's affirmative action or whether it's policies regarding to policing issues and police accountability, voting rights itself. You know, we're, we're, we're at a point where many of these voter suppression bills that have been passed include these mechanisms to overturn elections. And so we're just at a very critical point as a country as a whole, but especially as black folks, because uh, as we always say, you know, when, when white folks catch a cold, black folks get pneumonia. So if democracy is under attack for white folks, you know, what does that mean for us as, as, as black folks? Um, we can look at Florida and, and the so-called election police and how they arrested 20 people for, for voting. And out of those out of those 20, 19 are black, right? So, and that's that's not accidental. We could go on down the line around all these issues that affect the entire country, but in many ways affect us disproportionately. And so for our communities, this is a critical election. And what we're seeing is that there's a mixture of, of people being aware of that, right? Or being 
you know, enthusiastic about it and engaging because of it. We've, we've seen all sides of the spectrum. We've got some folks that, you know, they're, they're, they're hype. They're out there. They're, they're doing the work, right? They're, they're believing in our power and, and all of that. And then we got some folks who just aren't as enthusiastic about it for all the reasons that we, you know, we so often hear that, uh, you know, my vote doesn't matter and it won't make a difference. And, and all these elected officials are the same and, and all of that. And then we've seen the other piece of what you said, which is folks that that aren't necessarily against being involved or against voting, but just don't have the information. Like, what? You mean, oh, it's a midterm? We've seen people over the past couple of weeks in states that have early voting. They were like, oh, I didn't know the early voting had started. So it's not even so much a resistance to to voting and being involved. It's, it's just literally a lack of a lack of information. So we've seen that whole that whole spectrum. Yeah. But what we're believing is that our folks are going to come out in large numbers the same way that we did in, in 2020. And at the end of the day, we think that it's black folks that are going to make the difference this election cycle. We shouldn't bear that weight and we certainly won't bear the burden if things go sideways. Right. But we're mm-hmm. believing that we have the power to, to really be the difference. And, you know, when when you when you talk about all that is at stake and, and in particular, the fact that this is the first national election after an attempted coup. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sense that there is the coup and there's the attack on Pelosi's um, husband and there's all that drama over there. And then there's just the midterms, who's going to win over here. And a lot of the conversation about it doesn't come together nearly the yeah. way that it should. I mean, I think a lot mm-hmm. of people haven't really thought about so if the folks who try to take the country apart are not mm-hmm. fully and totally repudiated, then that's basically licensing, you know, post hoc what they actually did and basically allowing the efforts to hold them accountable to fall apart under the control of folks who are basically behind the election denial. What makes me wonder about our role in this, our historical role, and here's where I want to pull in what AAPF was doing on the tour. Um, Our part of the tour uh, was to concretize for voters what the attack on Black history, anti-racist ideas actually is meant to do, who's behind it, Mm -hmm. and what are the likely outcomes. So time after time, we all were saying that the the same folks who are trying to gerrymander us out of power or trying Mm -hmm. to gerrymander us out of the American story. But Mm -hmm. when I think about the, the fact that there still is a reluctance to see how dangerous this course is that we are on. There's still a reluctance to say, are we moving to an authoritarian state? Can we really use the fascism word? There still seems to be this sense that we will rise above it. Or as President-elect Biden said at the time, this is not who we are, which raises the question, how do you not know that this Mm. is exactly who we have been, Mm -hmm. what is it that allows our history of being violently pushed out of democracy, having our uh, elected officials be run out of office, having violent uh, coups that overturn democratically and legitimately elected governments, What is it that allows people not to see our history as relevant to the question, can it happen here? 
what what's behind this separation? And Cliff, what are the consequences if we can't figure out, no, that history is our history and we best know it in order to figure out what we need to be doing right now? I think you, you've got this combination of some people that know that history and they just think, like you said, right, that that can never happen to us. Right. That can happen to those people. Right. That can that can happen to black folks, but that could never happen to us. So there are some people that have that. And part of it is this, you know, this notion of American exceptionalism. Right. That there's some things that just can't happen in, in America, in the United States, because, you know, we're just beyond that. We're, we're better than that. And so there's that piece of it. Right. People that know what happened and just don't think it could ever happen again, or at least can't happen on a wide scale. It can only happen on a small group. But then you got the other segment of the population that it's not that they know it and they don't think it can happen again. They just don't know it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't know it for very structural reasons, right? They don't know it because it is very intentionally, you know, we always talk about lies of, lies of commission and lies of omission, right? They don't know it. Because it's been left out of, it's been omitted, or as you said, it's been gerrymandered out of our education system. So you got a whole nation of people that, you know, just don't don't know about. I often ask the question when I speak, especially when I speak to the the younger audience, I'll I'll ask, when did black folks get voting rights? (laughs) And, well, oddly, some people will even be like, you know the 80s or something like that but some might say 1954 and we we talk about brown or something like that and some will say somewhere in the 60s you know they'll talk about 63 and in the march on washington and some will say 1965 because obviously they're thinking about the voting rights act and and they'll often be very confident you know because they're like oh i know this answer and then when i point out well no you know you got to go back to 1870 and the 15th amendment and, you know, our eyes get all wide and they're like, what are you talking about? Most people don't know that history because it's been left out. And so you, when you don't know that there was that period of time where we had voting rights and then lost it or or, or had it taken away by force. Right. Mm-hmm. By force and betrayal. <laughs> right. Because we mm-hmm. had we had mm-hmm. the, our, our so-called friends. Um, who who cut a deal? I always say, anytime you heard the word compromise in U.S. history, you know that Black folks are the ones Lost. being compromised, right? That's right. <laughs> right. So when people realize that actually we had more political power and then lost it, there there is at least a recognition that this isn't a magical thing that just will sustain yeah. itself. Like democracy is a participatory enterprise. It just doesn't mm-hmm. happen on its own. And we have had to fight to participate. The fight is never over. Right? It's right. like we can't right. simply say we fought, we won, and now it's all good. Where we are not vigilant in supporting our right to participate, to have our voices heard, to have our votes counted, when yeah. we are not the strength behind our right, it easily gets uh, taken away. We are voting for ourselves, but we're also voting, frankly, for whether this is going to be a democracy or not. And it has fallen to us yet again to out-organize the efforts to suppress us. Now, mm-hmm. there are a, a lot of good moments where that effort to suppress us might have been interrupted um, had there been mm-hmm. more 
collective recognition of what vote suppression actually is, what it does, what agendas rise or fall on whether they're able to, as, as one, one court case said, with surgical precision, create voting rules that directly target our voters while leaving others relatively free. So now we have this, this uh, responsibility to try to out-organize. How do you think about that in the middle of what you're doing on this bus tour? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a constant thought, right? That we're we're in this position and we shouldn't be in this position of having to out-organize this voter suppression, right? And it's, and it's almost like a double-edged sword or catch-22 because we're seeing that even right now where we saw a big turnout in the in the Georgia primary. And so then you get people saying, oh, well, you know, there's such good turnout. There must not have been voter suppression. That bill was, must not have been that bad. And, and, and no, that's that's not that's not the logical conclusion of that situation. Right. What it means is that we have just been effective at out organizing the suppression. You know, when you know, these same people would, would look at Harriet Tubman and be like, oh, Harriet Tubman helped, you know, 100 <laughs> enslaved Africans freed. Oh, it must not have been that hard to get off the plantation, right? No, that's not what that means, right? It just means that we overcame ridiculous and historic obstacles. And that's what, what's happening. So it becomes a, you know, becomes a um, a penalty for our own work. You know, sometimes we get so tired of hearing the word resilient. Because, yeah. you know, people hear yeah. that you're resilient and they think that means you need less support. You can take anything. <laughs> it's, it's how right. I feel about Black Girl Magic. And I know a lot of my listeners are like, what's wrong with Black Girl Magic? There's nothing wrong with it except if it normalizes the idea that we have to be magical to survive. We should mm-hmm. be able to survive, thrive, participate without having to be magical. And we should be able to exercise power without overcoming vote suppression. So you are about to take off now. Tell us about where you're going, where you're going to be, and how voters can find you all. We'll be spreading the word about the importance of the election and what issues are impacted, how folks can turn out. We'll actually be in North Carolina on what will be their last day of early voting. Um, and I'm saying all this because while that's going on, we also have, so we call it the blackest bus in America, but we actually have two buses that have been roaming around uh, over the past month or two. And one of them has been primarily in Georgia. And so we're also going to be zigzagging across the state of Georgia. And I haven't even made up my mind. I don't know where I'm going to be on, on election day. I'm trying to decide <laughs> between North Carolina and Georgia because uh, yeah. I think some magic's going to happen in both of those. So how do people get involved? How can they support the, the, the Blackest Bus? The easiest way to get connected to us is by sending us a text message and getting on our text list. And people can text, we matter. That's one word, we matter. And they can text us at 25225. That'll get you connected to us. They'll also send some links to some important information that we have. They could go to any of our, our social media platforms. It's Black Voters MTR, Black Voters MTR. And if the, the Blackest Bus in America is coming to your state, then you'll be able to know. You can get on our email list so that you can get highlights and, and see where we've been and, and where we're going. And you can get connected, depending on the state that you're in, you can get connected to a partner organization that, you know, do, again, does this work all throughout the year and, and support them. Because we want people to be connected to us, but we also want folks to be connected to some organization in your community that is about doing this work. And we'll provide information so that people can know who 
those organizations are. So those are all the ways to get in touch with us, to find the Black is Bust in America. We even got a little map on our website that shows where the bus has been and and where it's going. (laughs) Which is wonderful. Cliff, it's been such a, a, a joy to have been on that tour with you and I look forward to future collaborations between Black Voters Matter and the African American Policy Forum. We're going to be following you in the little map as you go from place to place. And what y'all were doing with that, you know, Freedom Riders to Freedom Readers was truly a revolutionary act. And, you know, we need so much more of that. And we, we want to definitely play a part in partnering and doing whatever we can to further that mission. So thank y'all so much for what well, y'all we, did. We, we, welcome, we welcome that. Uh, Cliff, thank you so much for joining us and, and good luck with the rest of the tour. Thank you. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by senior producer Nicole Edwards with Kevin Minofu, Alex Van Bema, Nadia Nube, and Rebecca Sheckman. Mixing is by Sean Dunham. You can support us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review. We're keeping the conversation about book bans and the threat to democracy alive well after the election. If you want to chat with me and some of the incredible authors whose work is being censored by all this anti-CRT legislation, join us for the first installment of the Books Unbanned from Freedom Writers to Freedom Readers Book Club. On November 9th, we'll be featuring a conversation with Ibram X. Kendi. We're talking about his banned book, Stamped for Kids, and the impact of book bans on the anti-racism movement. Register for free at booksunbanned.org or sign up for the African American Policy Forum newsletter so you never miss an update about future book club events. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. We'll be back soon. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.